Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, found in Matthew chapter 25, reading verses 31 to 46. May we hear the word with joy in faith and reverence. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? or in prison, and did not minister to you. And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Certainly the uh, subject matter of the Olivet Discourse is a reminder of the importance of uh, being ready when the Lord comes. The end state of His coming, of course, is a great illustration of that. There is one final separation into two camps. One blessed, the other cursed. Simply two camps. The last judgment ought to be a final motivation to each of us uh, to serve the Lord faithfully because there are but two camps, those that are blessed and those that are cursed. Forever with God, forever absent God, and all that that means. We have been uh, struggling with uh, defining what alertness means. Jesus tells us in the discourse to be alert, to be ready. What does that mean? Well, we learn from the five uh, bridesmaids that uh, they were prepared. They were prepared because they readied themselves for a long wait. 
Uh, most men fail here. They cannot wait a long time for anything, much less the coming of the Lord. And so five are blessed and five are rejected. Simply two camps, no middle ground. Five received into the fellowship of the Lord forever and five shut out forever. Uh, we looked at another refinement of what it means to be alert in uh, the parable of the talents. Uh, they were faithful servants who were blessed because of the proper use of their gifts that God had given them. God gifts people in His church. He gifts them all. And those gifts are to be used in the life of the church, the advancement of the divine kingdom. One of the servants is cursed where he doesn't use his gift in a proper manner. Again, simply two camps, the blessing and the cursed. Our culture tells us there are many roads to the castle in the sky. There's many paths. The Bible tells us there's only two paths. One is the right and the other is the wrong. While this is not a parable, uh, it is a further refinement of our understanding of what alertness is in serving Christ, but more than serving Christ, serving His, His people. Because they are one and the same. Uh, central to our passage uh, this morning, uh, verses 31 to 34, uh, and the final judgment, of course, centers upon the judge. It's a legal proceeding. The judge is going to make a pronouncement upon that pronouncement. Men and women and boys and girls and even infants are separated into two camps forever and ever. No middle ground. No third camp. No purgatory. Simply two. Uh, the text is an illusion in the phrase, the Son of Man. Perhaps you're tiresome of this reminder, but uh, it's a dominant theme of the Gospel of Matthew that our Lord is the Son of Man, an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, perhaps it's worthwhile to... Uh, uh, look at the prophet. Because our Lord is inaugurating the fulfillment of uh, Daniel's vision in his life and ministry. In my vision at night, I looked and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So our Lord comes in the Gospel of Matthew acknowledging that he is just that divine person foretold by the prophet Daniel in the seventh chapter. Here the special emphasis is on our Lord's future coming in glory. 
It is, I think, of special significance in the interpretive portion of Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man is not mentioned. His people are mentioned. And they are fighting a terrible battle. in faithful service to the Lord. Here in Matthew 25, Jesus is seated upon the throne attesting to his identity, attesting to his victory, and attesting, of course, to his eternal deity as God himself. Uh, The text here, interestingly enough, rains blessings and curses upon those who either help or who do not help the people of God caught up in this titanic clash against the forces of evil. That then serves as a dividing point between the two great camps of men, those who help the people of God and those who do not. Forms the basis of the judgment, the last judgment The reference to coming with angels is uh, another allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Context is God coming to rescue Jerusalem surrounded by its enemies Uh, We learn from Matthew 25 that the people of God are caught in this great clash doing battle with the forces of evil. Some help and some hinder, hence the dividing ground into the two great eternal camps. Jesus, as God, fulfills the prophet in his triumphal coming to rescue his people from the hardships of discipleship. It's very interesting in the context, we have uh, the ninth verse of Zechariah 14. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. Christ comes to be king physically and visibly over the whole earth and to institute the finality of his reign. On that day there will be one Lord and his name will be the only name. Those who have served in his name will be blessed. Those who have not served his name will be cursed forever and ever. It's a reminder that the judge must be reckoned with. We don't think of those uh, terms uh, in our culture today. We don't even think in terms of judgment, but the Bible does. The Bible proclaims it. The Bible clearly states that Jesus is the final judge who will come as the king of the earth and that all men and women and boys and girls must reckon with his name. Well, judges judge, and so they render, Christ renders a judgment. And again, as I've stated, the nature of the judgment is the final separation of men into two camps. I remind you again, there are just two. There's not 50, there's not five, there's just two. Sheep and the goats, one for reward, the other for punishment. The sheep are the people of God. I remind you of the great discourse of the shepherd, John chapter 10. 
Jesus says of his sheep that they know his voice and they follow him. It's part of what it is to be a Christian. Uh, You don't just know the Lord, you follow the Lord. The demons know the Lord. They don't follow him. Part of being separated into the proper camp of blessing is knowing the Lord and following the Lord. And he gives eternal life and we shall never perish. And the king receives those on the right into his eternal kingdom. Notice the description of the eternal kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's a remarkable statement of the doctrine of election. We were chosen from eternity past before the foundation of the world and God has so prepared our blessing from eternity past. Upon our eternity's hinges upon the great decrees of God. Clearly a reminder of the doctrine of election. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Meaning that our faith is the product of our election. Our eternal instinct is the product of our election. More importantly, it's the basis of the blessings that the sheep are about to receive. All tied to the eternal decrees of God. That God and Jesus is the king of whom we must reckon. And upon his reckoning, men are divided into two great eternal camps and there is no recovery whatsoever. The point of our election is that victory is certain for the elect. It does beg the question, well, how do I know if I'm of the elect? Well, believe in Jesus and follow him and keep following. And all the vagaries and difficulties and struggles and battles of life, may it be known of us that you are a follower of Jesus. Not just followed for a season. Not just followed when we were young. But throughout the course, the hills, vales, mountains and valleys of life. We were followers of the great Christ, the eternal King. Who now comes to reward his followers with eternal blessing. In verses 35 to 40, we learn the basis of the final judgment and the eternal blessings. Namely, it's based upon the good works of the followers of Jesus. This is the reason, again, verses 35 to 40, that they are received into eternal blessing. It's a reference to Uh, their treatment of Christ. Uh, It's very interesting when you look at uh, the things that they did. Uh, It's quite clear that uh, they rallied around the disciples of Christ, the servants of Christ, to give them aid. And then Jesus says, uh, what you did for them, you were really doing for me. And so it is a reminder that when we do good works, we are ultimately doing them for Christ. 
because he is so united with his people that they are one and the same. By the way, that's something of what it is to be a follower of Christ. You are engaged with the people of God throughout all of time. And your treatment of them becomes absolutely decisive and irrevocable. That you take care of the people of God and in so doing, you are reminded of our Savior that you are literally and ultimately caring for him because he and his people are one and the same. I know they are distinct. We are not the Christ. But to render service to the people of God is to render service to Christ. By the way, for those of you who know people who have absented themselves from the life of the church, you ought to remind them that they are walking on troubled ground because we are called into a life of service to the people of God. And by the way, that definition is ultimately left to him. The winnowing fork is in his hands and his angels who will make the final separation. In my own mind, uh, in the discharge of his service in the end time tribulation, he and his people are hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and imprisoned. And here, Christ blesses those who fed, gave drink, received, clothed, nursed, and visited them in prison. Part of the great outworking of the themes of the Gospel of Matthew is that he comes to inaugurate the end-time tribulation signified in his death, crucifixion upon the cross, In the prosecution of his ministry, we know that he hungers and he thirsts. Uh, On the cross, he's going to be rendered virtually naked, imprisoned by the nails. His people, likewise, they are found hungry and thirsty, prosecuting uh, the advancement of the kingdom of God in the end-time tribulation. They are threatened. They are imprisoned. They are reviled. Those who help them are now blessed in eternity. When they ask, did they they do this? Lord, when did we do this for you? Verse 40. The king, who is Jesus, the king, will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's a remarkable attestation of the corporate solidarity of the people of God that we are so united to Christ and He with us that when we serve His people, we are serving Him, the King. Give you a military uh, illustration of this, if I if I may try. Uh, as you know, in the army, if you don't know, provide a momentary description. But there are uh, what I would call simply war fighters: the infantrymen, uh, the cannoneers, 
the tankers or something of the point of the spear in battle. Behind the warfighters are logisticians caring for them, providing food, providing medical care to the wounded, providing ammunition, again, engaged in the great activity of supplying the warfighters so that they can prosecute their duties. What Jesus is telling us is that the logisticians and the warfighters are the same. That those who so come alongside the disciples of Christ who are wounded in His service to care for them are rendering service to no less than the King Himself. It's an invitation to rally around those who are wounded in the service of Christ because in serving them, you are serving the great King. Because they are one. He constitutes us as one. One of the things that I love about the parable of the talents is that we are different, but we are rewarded the same. We have different gifts, but we prosecute the same call. If you will, to press my military metaphor, some are logisticians. Some people engage in prayer, providing different services logistically, perhaps to missionaries. Some are warfighters, some are on the front lines, but really they are all one. One people, one king, to serve the people of the king is to serve the king. These are the ones that are blessed. Uh, the text is an allusion, by the way, uh, to Isaiah chapter 58, seventh verse. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. The context is the observance of fast and righteous service. The greater fulfillment is now marked out here as the nature of the final judgment of men and women and boys and girls into the two great, final, irrevocable, irreparable camps that will go into eternal reward or blessing. And the service, again, is for caring for the people of God wounded in service. Uh, if you would, in your New Testament, go back to Matthew 25, I would like to uh, make a very important distinction uh, of to whom we are serving as the basis of eternal reward. It's found in the 40th verse. I'll tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's an obvious reference to the disciples of Christ. Brothers of mine, 
It's not just on the grand scale of being a citizen of the universe that you're helping people. You are helping know the disciples of Christ, the brothers of Christ. The whole world is aghast in helping people. You and I are made different because we help the brothers of Christ. And that's the basis of the final judgment of the two great irreconcilable camps helping the church, helping the brothers of Christ. Let's see if we can't refine this from the Gospel of Matthew, 12th chapter, 50th verse. Our Lord's uh, family, his mother and his brothers, come to seek audience with him. He redefines uh, his family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's a definition of the family of God, the disciples of Christ who do the will of his Father in heaven. They are the brothers of Christ. Helping them. Again, I'm not against uh, helping someone uh, who is a non-Christian, but the basis of the judgment here is helping Christians, the brothers of Christ. Reminded to us that we should rally to the cause when we come across the disciples of Christ, the brothers of Christ, and when they are in need because of the prosecution of serving Him, that we must rally to their side and serve them because in serving them, we are serving the King. Because of the unity of the church, the unity of the people of God. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 6. But if anyone caused one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck, be drowned to the depths of the sea. The little ones are a reference to disciples of Christ, believers in Christ. Again, Christ is refining the basis of the nature of the final judgment that we rally to believers who prosecute the call of God and serve them, and such is serving Christ, the great King. Same verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. We don't cast aspersion upon the disciples of Christ, the followers of Christ, because their representatives in heaven are reminding the eternal Father of what is happening to his servants upon the earth. Uh, Lastly, the 14th verse. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And he's not willing they can never be lost. Christ saves all of his own and none are, none are lost. So what I'm suggesting to you is this is a particular service. I mean, our culture and our civilization engages in great acts of good works. I'm, I'm glad it does. I'm glad there are food banks. I'm glad uh, there's medical people who go overseas to serve, whatever reason. They simply go to provide physical care. 
But this is refined to care for the brothers of Christ. I think more particularly who are wounded in the service of prosecuting the kingdom of God. Again, in the church, there are war fighters, there are missionaries who travel to distant lands, who leave their homes and their families, and who are the point of the spear. We rally to their cause to care for them, to provide for them, because we care for our own. But even in our own country, there are those who are engaged in particular acts of advancing the frontiers of the blessedness of the end-time temple, who are wounded because of aspersion, because they're reviled, and perhaps as time goes on in our culture, are thrown in jail, who are impoverished. We go to, we go to prison to visit them, to remind them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. And in so doing, we serve Christ, their king. So that the logistician and the warfighter are one and the same, indistinguishable. We rally to our own, care for our own. In so doing, we're serving the King Messiah. I, I, I press this point because uh, I'm not unmindful that some in the church totally misunderstand this text. Jesus has said to us who are rendering service to his brothers, not just to mankind in general, but to his brothers, his people, his servants. A couple of years back, I was watching a funeral mass for a very prominent uh, politician. And of course, uh, as I listened to the mass, it was quite clear that the church uh, saw this very prominent politician to be a Christian, uh, and they cited this verse as a reason. But the context is uh, not using other people's money to help the poor. The context is using your own, in your own service, to help the brothers of Christ. Again, this is, uh, this is not the reward of a man who do, does the good work of uh, taking money from you and giving it to the poor. That's excluded from the context. It's helping the brothers of Christ, the church of Christ. Now let the world have its food banks. Uh, let the world lobby its politicians to redistribute wealth however they desire to have it so redistributed. But it ought to be different in the life of the church because we are so united to the brothers of Christ that we rally to their side and help them with our own possessions and gifts and time. The world has its way. Christ gives us our way in the nature of the final, last, irrevocable judgment. We rally to our own to serve the people of God, the brothers of Christ. I was, uh, the reason I bring up this illustration of this prominent politician 
is because he had an incredibly immoral lifestyle. And it just bugged me to no end that the church was blessing him with eternal life. But nonetheless, I don't wear the garb of the final referee. But it did not go unnoticed by me that he didn't give his own time, service, money, talents to serve those wounded in the service of Christ. That is our calling. He had his, so be it. Ours is different. We take care of our own. And in so doing, we're serving the great king of the church. Illustration of this is or not in a text that we often repair to, Romans chapter 8, because some of the language is a parallel. Interesting thing about uh, context of Romans chapter 8 is something of a definition of the path of serving the Lord uh, coming to the end time blessing because we're so united with Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing whatsoever. But the path is difficult. path of serving the Savior is a path of hardship. And Paul remarks uh, just to that end in the 35th verse, who shall separate the love of God in Christ shall, shall trouble, hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword. Something of the language of Matthew 25 in prosecuting and walking faithfully upon the path that God has set out for us in the scriptures and from time everlasting, we suffer tribulation and sword and peril and hunger and nakedness. And God has his people who come along our side to help us in those times of great need because they are one and the same, linked as brothers in Christ and linked to the great king was head of the church. It's a motivation to serve the church, to serve the wounded. And in every case, in every season, in every church, there are people that are wounded in serving Christ, and we rally to their side. And such we are serving the Savior because he is one with his people. Let me speak momentarily to the one of the great vagaries of our culture. It's not serving Gandhi or Buddha or Mohammed. It's serving Christ, the King. We have this incredible, incipient strain in our culture they were all on the path to heaven and one follows Gandhi or Muhammad or Buddha or whatever. Christ is excluding and destroying that line of reasoning. You are serving Christ and Christ alone. 
And serving those that are His is the same as service to Him. Everyone else is excluded. That is the basis and the nature of the final judgment. Rendering service to His people who are linked to Him. There are 10,000 religions in the world. Jesus is saying the basis and the nature of the end time judgment is but one, serving Christ in proper service. Now, I'm not saying if you pass a poor person on the street that you pass them by. It's God gives you time and occasion. People are hungry and you have the ability to help them, certainly in the freedom of your own conscience, help them. But that is not the point of this text. The point of the text is serving the brothers of Christ. Helping them. Because in their service to the Savior, they have made themselves hungry. They have been impoverished. Some have been thrown into prison. Some are reviled. We rally to our own. And in so doing, we're serving the Savior. Let me pause here. There's something of a theological problem here. Momentarily reference it. Uh, The nature of the judgment here is good works, is it not? Good works in a very defined way, serving the brothers of Christ. So are we saved by our works? Is the basis of our justification our good works? Uh, In verse 37, they're called righteous. But it does not mean that we are justified by works. Uh, We believe the merits of the work of Christ and his righteousness alone imputed to our account is the basis of our salvation because our works are impermanent. Uh, incomplete. And that's the basis of the gospel. I remind you, if you're not a Christian, uh, uh, you need the works of another. That's the work of Christ and the merits of His righteousness charged to your account. Believe upon Him uh, because only His works will avail before an eternally righteous God. Now, that's a starting point of being a brother of Christ. However, the faith that justifies It's never alone. Works always follow true faith. God accepts us only on the righteousness of Christ. However, good works demonstrate and validate that we are his disciples. It means that God in the end and on the world stage and in the presence of our enemies vindicates our service in his cause. point of the 23rd Psalm, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You bless me and you close the door on them because David was a faithful follower of the great king and the great shepherd. The primacy of justification is what Christ did for us, but this does not obviate that we do for him as evidence that we value and we esteem him and that we rally to his people because he is one with his people. Disciples serve disciples and therefore, or thereby, pardon me, serve Christ and service to Christ is rewarded. And let me say it again, all the rest are rejected. All of the rest are rejected. Perhaps they fed brother, perhaps they provided clothes. Perhaps they've set people free from jail. That's not the point of this text. This is is service to the brothers of Christ, not mankind in general. I I love the 
bumper sticker coexist. I mean, you've all seen it. I, I, I'm not saying it's wrong in and of itself. I mean, I coexist with different religions. I don't take up arms against them. I coexist with them. There's a measure of modicum of truth in that. But in the final judgment, there is no, absolutely no coexistence. The brothers of Christ are blessed into his eternal rewards, all of the rest. I don't care what the symbol is, a crescent moon, a star of David, all of the rest are decisively and irrecoverably rejected. So, Pastor how can you be so dogmatic? Read the text, the Word of God. Two outcomes. What's done for Christ and His people, everything else is total loss. Total loss of which there is no recovery in eternity. Serving the church is the call of the people of God. And such is rewarded. The final judgment accursed is based again upon the absence of good works in service to Christ. Verses 41 uh, to 46, uh, Matthew chapter 25. The same litany, there were people who were poor, hungry, and naked, and in peril, imprisoned, Let's just simply read Matthew 25, 41st verse. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when, when did we see you in this estate? I'll tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. By the way, Jesus is on his way to the cross. And people are going to mistreat him to eternal ruin. You mistreat the people of Christ, the brothers of Christ, you are mistreating him. And that's a decisive marker of eternal judgment. So that the service on those on the left is rejected and cursed. They are commanded to go live with the devil and his fallen angels forever and ever. Notice they are one and the same. You don't serve Christ. You are one with the devil. I mean, we think of the great camps of men as to many different variations. They're just simply two. You're united with Christ or you are not. If you're not, you're united with the devil. If you're united with the devil, you will get what the devil is going to get. You don't serve Christ and his people. You're one. One with Satan and all of his fallen angels. And you will be one with them throughout all of eternity. And you will never be let out of such a prison. And the last judgment, this is the sole discriminator. Interesting, is it not? I remind you of this because it 
simply such a great part of the text. Both camps do good works. But only what is done for Christ will last. Everything else will perish. I know it's not very popular in our culture to think in such decisive terms. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Matthew has now just defined for us who the good are and who the evil are. One is a camp that rallies to help the brothers of Christ and in so doing serve Christ and are so united with him. The other camp is all the rest. That's the single discriminator of the end time judgment. Both too good but only what is done for Christ will last. I don't know if you picked up on this or not, perhaps not, but this is our Lord's last sermon. He is three days away from the cross. The great act, the great event that will divide men and service the cross. It is the way of the disciple to follow and to serve him and those that are his. And prosecution of that, being a disciple of Christ is difficult, it's hard, but service in his cause is rewarded. This is the reward. And service includes serving those that are in his service because that is rewarded as well. They are one and the same. It's the basis of the final judgment. It's the calling of Grace Bible Church to help the disciples of Christ who are wounded in service, however they are so wounded. Let's always rally to those that are wounded in our service to him who is our king.